I'm Ren Young. And I'm Katrina Vargas. And And this this is That Other F Word. Well, everybody, the the gifts of talking to Calvin and being pals with Daisha just keep coming and coming because they connected us with another incredible individual, Dr. Alicia Lola Jones. Um, She is Calvin's fiance. Well, what? Calvin's her fiance. I don't know. They she, they were both very, um, they talk about being together as partners though. So nobody's behind the other one. No. Nobody's the man behind the woman or the woman behind the man. Nope. They're very, they're a very evolved power couple for yes. sure. Absolutely. They're really the power couple that you and I would aspire to be Katrina, I think. Oh, it'd be my dream to be them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what's happening anymore. Yeah. <laughs> have you, have you known? Um, so Alicia uh, is an assistant professor of folklore and ethnomusicology at Indiana University Bloomington Um, got a lot of degrees a lot of education this lady she's incredible Um, her PhD is from the University of Chicago Um, and she we we will link you to her website in the episode notes Um, but it's important to note and she'll discuss this in part two but there's, she's got a new book out that you can purchase called Flaming, The Peculiar Theopolitics of Fire and Desire in Black Male Gospel Music Performance. So what we she's talked to her about was... Everything. She's a, I mean, she's literally everything. She's everything. Yeah. Um, we, we talked to her about white fragility, which if you're not familiar, it's a concept. Um, the, the nomenclature, the wording might be new, but it's something that's been around... Uh, as a concept for a very long time, but it's, um, we're talking about it because a couple of years ago, this, uh, woman, uh, Dr. Robin D'Angelo wrote a book about it. Um, and so we will get into that and like a lot more because she is, Alicia is just a treasure trove of information. Um, and so we were really lucky to, to get to chat with her today. So you're lucky in to advance. Live. You're welcome. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So enjoy and, uh, you know, buy her book. Yes. All right. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day and away from Calvin. I mean, what a, what, a, what a sacrifice that is. Right. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm happy to join you guys. I enjoyed y'all's conversation, and I'm honored that you would include me in your conversation. Um, So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I think as soon as we were done with Calvin, Katrina and I were texting, and we were like, "So this Alicia seems pretty great. How do we get her on too?" (laughs) He's pretty good about about lifting me up and I hope I do the same for, for him. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what else we could discuss. Cause you guys had, y'all dug deep with him. So <laughs> we're, we're I'm a little deep. nervous. No. <laughs> this is, listen, you're the lady behind this genius. This is. Listen, we walk <laughs> side by side. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You're both awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, so, you know, 
despite the fact that I was raised in what I consider an extremely liberal, open-minded home where, you know, racist thoughts and homophobic, like those were the things that were kind of hated, not, you know, not the other way around. Um, there's still a lot of concepts right now that are really new to me. Um, and, you know, some of them, you know, I've never thought about or changing the way I think about things. And some of them are things that, you know, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, we're here. Minute, well, I'll finish this and then we'll get to our guest questions. Yes. Finish your some thought. of them are things that I guess maybe I just didn't have the, a name for, you know what I mean? And so we wanted to talk to you about white fragility and then also anything else you wanted to uh, grace us with hearing. <laughs> but before we get into that, we have our guest questions. Um, and I guess I'll kick it off if that's okay with you, Katrina. That is. But I just really got ahead of myself there, though. I'm so we're glad. Very, <laughs> we're very excited. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first one is, are you a feminist? You know, I am a black feminist who more specifically is womanist. Oh, could you tell us more about that? <laughs> so womanism is a, an expression of feminism that looks at and takes seriously the experiences of Black women and understands that given the really uh, peculiar and strange way that uh, Black women have existed in the United States, in many ways they sit at a thick intersection of identity with regard to access, um, visibility, uh, audibility, since I'm a musician. Um, womanism takes very seriously how class and all of those things figure into how we understand the world around us. And so when womanism, people say, is uh, to feminism as uh, purple is to lavender. That's a very sort of famous quote. Interesting. Yes. And it was popularized by Alice Walker, the woman who wrote the book, The Color Purple, and the movie that came from that. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So womanish was like a vernacular term that is used still to kind of talk about womanhood that is bodacious, that might be perceived um, as sassy, as forthright. Um, but it also figures into relationship with community, with people of other genders and sexes. Um, Alice Walker is a lesbian herself. So that um, awareness of orientation is already sort of in how people understand womanism. Uh, but also womanists, in the long definition of what womanism is, uh, womanists love to love, they love food, they love roundness, they love music, they love to dance, and they love to um, love life. Um, and so this idea of flourishing that needs to be articulated for Black women is in the definition of womanism that Alice Walker popularized. And I have already learned more now than any other <laughs> podcast episode. And, uh, we could wrap it up, but I say we keep going. <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. It, it, it's very cool. And it doesn't have those negative things that, you know, we have this podcast to try to take back the word feminism. And, you know, when you say womanist or woman is, you know, that doesn't have all of that baggage. 
Yeah, so yeah. People don't know what it means. That might be, you know. Yeah, yeah. and but, you know, a lot of people um, have done in religious studies. It's really, really popular. Like a lot of my professional peers write from a womanist lens, just like people write from a feminist lens. Um, and it is held like, um, say, um, Latina strains of feminist thought, like mujerista, um, would be a similar sort of uh, Latina-focused way of thinking about the world. And, you know, things like linguistics that matter to a person who is of uh, a Latin heritage or Spanish-speaking um, heritage. Um, yeah, it, it really, it's really pretty interesting to use it to think about culture, to think about relationships among women. Um, it really helps me to understand some of the ways we may move about differently or do move about differently in the world. That's, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, we've talked about it before on here where, you know, black feminism is different than white and all four of us are, di are four different kinds of feminists because of our experience and because of who we are. And so yeah, you know, just by nature of being different, we're going to be different in, in a category, you know, and so like you said, violet yeah. to, to purple, you know, lavender. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we can, we, we usually ask what you think of feminism, but you kind of went there. So we'll say, who do you, <laughs> who do you think of when you think of feminism or womanist? Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, my mother would not describe herself. She would not use the term as fe feminist, but like her personality, her, her life's work um, would constitute what we would describe as feminist. Um, my mother, um, she is proud of her age. She's 76 years old. Uh, she married my father, who was 11 years her younger. And um, was an artist, um, a visual artist. Um, she gives, I, I think she resembles like Diane Carroll or Felicia Rashad in terms of her style and timelessness. Um, she, uh, she, she was a, she's a visual artist and she's also a minister. And to be a minister in that time, to be a visual artist, a woman coming from Eastern Shore, Maryland, Chesapeake Bay, um, in the mid 20th century was all of these things were not what women do. Um, and so to see how she forged her own path. And then when she had my sister and I in her late thirties and early forties, um, um, how she was able to pour into us and really make sure that in many ways we were able to have access where she was unable to, um, I see with her uh, self-awareness that is still instructive to me. Um, and I'm happy to represent her in, in whatever I do in the classroom and anywhere else. Cool. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you. And my sister, my sister, Lord, she's, my younger sister is, uh, I think she would, she would, you know, one can be black feminist and womanist. Um, womanist, it, it kind of gets at a particular sort of politics. Um, she would she would be somewhere in there as a young woman. Um, she works in the District of Columbia Public Schools at Duke Ellington School for the Arts, where we both went to school. We're proud representatives and 
she is director of the or dean of the arts there. Um, and the way that she takes care of those kids is though they are her own. Um, though she does not have um, blood children, the way she takes up care of them as a single woman, I think needs to be recognized. Um, how motherhood takes shape in different ways. Um, and that it is not necessarily you conceiving children, but it is also um, taking responsibility and imagining with them, protecting them. And she gets up every morning, regardless of all of the drama that a drama uh, school has, and she fights for them. She gets the resources, she loses sleep, and it's her pleasure too. So she's one of them too. Oh, I love her. She speaks to my soul with that. <laughs> Angela, Angela Jones. Yeah. Angela Jones. <laughs> uh, well, last, um, and you can you can answer the second or third thing if you'd like instead of the first. You know, um, but what is the last thing that you googled? Yeah, if it'll get you in trouble. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's see. The <laughs> last thing. <laughs> the last thing that I googled might have been on my iphone let's see okay so we go bargain shopping a lot calvin and i that is how we bond we love a good find <laughs> so <laughs> right now and i think he said that but it is <laughs> it is very true um we price compare i will show him something and we will set an intention and say okay this is 50 bucks but i think if we will wait it can be 25. <laughs> And it actually works. <laughs> Intention is a powerful tool. <laughs> so we love to bargain shop and we love to price compare. And, um, you know, he might see a duffel bag and he'll show it and he'll make a decision about, do I feel like this would be a fine? And I might see it like weeks later, um, hopefully discounted. And if I see it discounted from what we saw, I will grab it and send him a picture. And we both we dress together. Yeah. I love <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's a whole sport. Yes. <laughs> Sounds magical. Yes, That's like yes. a fun activity to do together too. It's almost like you're like on a mission. It you know? is. Like literally we'll hop out the car, um, you know, as we like road trips, we'll hop out the car and we know the discount stores like on our typical route and we will hop out, walking in with a purpose. And sometimes in this, you know, um, uh, COVID moment when stuff reopened, we were like, as black folk walking into the store real fast, like we gotta, we gotta kind of <laughs> throw up the pace. We don't want to get any undue attention. So we'll take off our masks. We might stand at the front, you know, and then we'll commence our, our little sports. So we have to be a little strategic when we do it, unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> we kind of talked about this and I do, you know, what masks is a whole thing. And, 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 and if you're of a certain race, it's, it's more of a something. And, you know, everybody's complaining about it, their civil liberties being uh, infringed upon. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> You're a very specific person saying that. You have no idea. Yeah, right. yeah. Nah, it, we actually talk about like, okay, know where you are. And it's different. I'm from Washington, D.C., so moving about there, it's, it's not the same as moving about in 
Tennessee or in Indiana where I work or in Kentucky um, when we are going back and forth. Um, and even, you know, it's interesting, like, uh, I think it's okay that I say that, you know, he uh, went to go and get medical work done um, just, you know, for maintenance. And as we drove up, first of all, we have a rule that um, in this time we don't move about by ourselves, even if it's grocery shopping or getting gas or just errands. If we can help it, we move about with each other just because there are ways in which, especially when there are particular things in the headlines, we find that there are um, ways that people act aggressively. Um, and so basically yesterday I had an appointment and um, Calvin had an appointment immediately following, I can't remember the specifics, but we had to drive a long distance. And so we actually went home to change because for Calvin's safety, he puts on a tire that reads a little bit more professional as opposed to the joggers that I love for him to wear um, because he, he cannot go in with his partner. And even if he were to go in with his partner, the reception is just a little bit different if he's super casual and comfortable after having helped me move. So um, uh, we actually went out of our way to change so that he wouldn't experience another inconvenience. Um, he had to get a tooth pulled, uh, an emergency tooth pull. Um, and that was a traumatic experience that kind of reinforced um, that we can't, we can't, uh, we can't change these rules. Um, the lack of care was, it was, it was a lot for him. And I think he was afraid it diminished, you know, how I viewed him, but getting your tooth pulled and not getting prescriptions for it is like for anybody that's, uh, why would I think any less of you, you know? So, um, yeah. The, I yeah. mean, that is, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I, did, we did an episode I, when I was pregnant. It's, it's, infuri it's infuriating. So this is something we don't have to worry about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and this is, this is why you're on. This is why we're here. This is what we're talking about. And, and so it does kind of, this kind of leads into white fragility. So mm -hmm. the people who acted that way, who mm -hmm. did that with either their bias or even their unconscious bias, because there are, there are people, and you said this, you know, there are people who don't think they're right. I mean, ever, nobody thinks they're racist, right? Well, I think some people do know they're racist and they're fine with it. <laughs> Um, but no, the, but the, a good ch chunk of people are not, but they also then don't think about when I get out and go to do anything, I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing. Right. Right. Because I have so, the privilege of being, you know, not of color. Oh yeah. It's interesting. I, I mean, several things flood my mind. I think going back to attire i so i in another life i was um an opera singer um i studied opera that's so cool it was i i loved the life of a 
touring musician. It's hard, and it's especially hard during this time. Shout out to all of my friends who are who are professional, amazing musicians, and who whose entire training and livelihood has been changed because of this pandemic. I mean, it's being outlawed to you know, it's prohibited to sing publicly or in community. Um, but I can recall. Um, while in conservatory, having discussions with my friends who were, you know, um, I went to Oberlin, so this sort of liberal experience, um, uh, folks who are in many ways uh, aware. Um, however, I would say things like, you know, when I go shopping, I'm very intentional about how I present myself. And not everyone feels these sorts of this sort of stress. I won't speak for everyone. Um, uh, we aren't a monolith. I, it was just, there were um, ways that moving about stores was just so uncomfortable. And my non-Black uh, peers would just be like, it's not that deep. You go how you go. And if, you know, they follow you, whatever, you know, just, you know, it's not that deep. How, but all of my black friends, which in the conservatory, there's notoriously this issue of under representation. We were all looking at each other like, okay, it's, it's, it's not, you know. Um, at 15, I think was the first time I was stopped by police in a store. 15, shopping with my friend, treating her to a birthday gift and um, they stopped me thinking I had stolen something. So it's not just men, but it's an indignity that women experience. And like in my favorite mall, they like screamed, hey girl. And they came and pushed me to the side. And I don't think I ever went to that franchise again or that mall. Um, Thankfully, there were other options, but I was just so embarrassed. I was Christmas shopping. Well, and, and you know, the, the white friends saying, oh, just go do whatever. They don't, it's not been done to you. You don't know how uncomfortable it is. You don't right. know how undignified it is. Like, you don't. Yeah. So, yeah, in theory, you know, but that's not how practice is. So, um I guess we can start by, so we're here to talk about white fragility. And, and so can you, how would you describe white fragility? Yeah. Um, well, Robin D'Angelo is doing the work that we've seen African-Americans doing for quite some time, which is pointing to the, the social and cultural interactions um, where there is a boundary or a limit um, um, in, in terms of talking about intense or uh, troubling uh, conversations across racial identity, cultural lines. Um, and she, as a white woman, describes um, how it, it can be not only an inconvenience, but an injustice to center our focus on white people's interests while doing the work of dismantling racism for people of color. Um, and it, her, her work is gaining a lot of momentum and is being compared to a, a similar uh, new work uh, entitled White Rage. 
Um, uh, but yeah, she she is unpacking what we have read in blogs about white tears, um, which many of us have stories about how white tears have been weaponized. Um, uh, and actually, that white fragility conversation has been taken up uh, by um, artists like Larry Brownlee. We just did a book club on it and he had his patrons of the arts. Um, he's an amazing opera tenor, like one of the most winningest black uh, tenors. And he was able to gather, I think maybe 200 people on Zoom to talk about this particular work. Uh, so it's a really popular work uh, that Robin D'Angelo has, has done. Um, and so, you know, obviously a lot of this is about white people being uncomfortable talking about this stuff, you know, and as if that's more important than the actual issue that's being talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Calvin actually, in the episode, we talked with him about this and he asked us why as white people, we would be so uncomfortable talking about it. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about that ever since we spoke with him. And I feel like something that because i hadn't really thought about it before he asked that question you know i just have always known that it's <laughs> something i'm not comfortable talking about but willing to talk about um and i think there's a lot of shame around it mm. uh, and shame is something we talk about in a lot of different contexts but i think you know the worry about saying the wrong thing or even acknowledging the problem is pretty heavy. Um, and I know that um, Calvin sent me a panel that you did on this and you were talking about when he was running for office, talking to people and they just kind of wanted to focus on love. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and people, I, yeah, so love sounds really romantic. It sounds awesome. It sounds well-intended. But under the banner of love and even my Christian faith, people went into uh, the unknown parts of the world to missionize folks and did so through war, did so through prohibiting their language and culture under what they said was love. And so love without justice has no accountability. Um, it sounds really cool. It sounds like we can will people through our, through our niceness, not even kindness. Kindness and niceness are not the same thing, but through our niceness, persuade people to do right by us. But there are people who adopt children and abuse them in the name of love. Yeah. Without justice, love doesn't work. It doesn't, it's not sustainable. You know, um, he also talked to us about, and I'm sure you have a lot of other examples of this that you could share with us, um, but about, you know, one, is this aversive racism? Is this the kind of like gentle, oh, I didn't mean it that way racism, um, where people upon learning that you were a professor immediately asked if you had a PhD? Yeah. Um, is that something you've experienced a lot? And what what does it feel like to you know hear that and then have to react to it and i'm sure that you've reacted to it different ways at different times but right and we talked about you being you know so for our listeners who weren't on before when before we started recording you know we asked dr jones 
Alicia, what she would like to be called here. So when people ask you what your qualifications are and you actually being a doctor, let's, let's hear it. Let's, let's hear all the things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is actually a sort of social media conversation among professors, professional black folk, black Twitter, you know, black Facebook, where you can, there's actually a literature on this. Um, so every semester, I start my class off with a hand game called Fly Girl. And I'm kind of known for this hand game, but it's my way of introducing myself and to, just like we give our preferred pronouns, to give the preferred way I would like to be um, uh, called in class and in professional settings. And um, I'll, I'll give you a link to the song, but the point I'm making is, after sharing the song with the students, I tell them that if they were to meet my mother, the feminist that she is, even though she may not call her herself a feminist, if they were to meet her and ask her her name and she offered up Martha Jones, she's a woman of a particular time who's basically from the South. You don't call her Martha. No. Um, like that is just not where you go toward. As we do with any business etiquette, you start off formal and are invited to be ca casual. This is yeah. all a product of raising, by the way. It's Hello. Concerned. Hello. Yeah. I <laughs> like going to Jamba Juice. Y'all remember Jamba Juice? Do you have Jamba Juice? Yeah. Um, or like Smoothie King. Yeah. And this 17-year-old asked my mother her name. And then when her order was up, he was like, Martha. And my mother... My mother could not <laughs> abuse. <She's> like, <laughs> child. <laughs> you know, it's not just age, right? It is, so she's 76. She's from the South. She's Black. So she was raised in a time where Black folk were referred to as boy and girl. So much so that the children of the people that they worked with would do this. Law enforcement would do this. Um, and they would, um, in order to get away from that indignity, they would legalize honorifics or titles in their name. So this is why you have people whose first name is elder or deacon or queen or prince or king. It was a way to um, get people to put some respect on their name. You see this in old footage of Mr. T between him and David Letterman. And Mr. T was like, so what's your first name? And he was like, Mr. And David Letterman is like, what? And then he's like, and my middle name is that dot. And my last name is T. And he was like, but what's your real name? Mr. T. And so it becomes this whole performance but it is an actual thing. Even Maya Angelou's um, um, a moment with her and this young lady who was African-American but raised with non-African-American parents, and she called her Maya, mm. and Dr. Angelo stopped her and said, you will refer to me as Dr. Angelo. And then the young lady years later says, I was not raised by Black folk, and I didn't know that I was being experienced as disrespectful. And so I tell my students, um, this, if I'm going to teach you African-American culture, 
it would be this and it would be a disservice if I didn't tell you that you should presume formality and I would rather people be offended that you said ma'am than you being like hey sis and then they're looking at you like this is not that moment this is not <laughs> this is not that moment in Spanish, um, in Spanish we call it confianza and so it's like mm-hmm. the comfort and like you know, mm-hmm. we you know we we are very much taught in in my family in my husband's family you know we everybody is a mister or a ms until yes. until you are corrected otherwise yes yes but even you know? even in spanish like grammatically you can understand formality and casual you know like who you know who is an elder we right? still call my mother in law doña which is like you know and so and she doesn't she doesn't require that of us, but my sis, my ex sister in law, who you know, she's still the chill mother of my nieces and nephews, still calls my mother in law Doña. I mean, she yeah. never called her even by her first name, even though she's allowed. She's been in the family thirty years. You know, it's interesting. Like even to that point, like permission and even how one reserves honor and reverence or respect, which for folks who are for a feminist perspective, because we've gotten into these conversations and I've had colleagues tell me, oh, don't, why are you doing that? Stop that here. I, my response is, but intraculturally, within my culture, even my colleagues who are older than me, we still refer to each other as doctor or professor, even if everyone else is going by first name. And we've been asked, why do y'all do that? And the response is, this is our culture. And it becomes like, Oh, you have a culture, but you're American. I'm African-American. There's an entire way that we refer to each other. And even my, my new, my student, and then I'll stop. She just completed. Um, and I called her Dr. Martin. And I said, you, I give you permission to now refer to me as Alicia. And she said, you will always be Dr. Jones. And I said, you will always be Dr. Martin because there will be times where people will wrestle that, that, title from you and you I need you to know that I will always affirm the authority and work that you have done so you are Dr. Martin and she was like thank you Dr. Jones and that's a part of what's at work even my parents when they write uh send me mail it's Dr. Alicia because I completed school and that is a representation of their good investment sure they're proud and and so do people do you get like pushback from people Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can be, you know, the cousin. The old, I had an interaction with my cousin right when I completed. And he was like, so we got to call you Dr. Jones now? I said, you know what? I require that of my students because that is the nature of our relationship. You don't have to call me Dr. Jones, but I would hope you would take pride in it. And right after that, he sent me a card and a gift for graduating. And he was like, I'm proud of you, Dr. Jones. You know? Like... You know, it's, it, I don't have to, it's, it's mine. Like whether you say it or not, you can be small. <laughs> if you want to, you know, push me a little, that's fine. I'm still that. <laughs> when people ask you if you have your PH, do, okay. So are they asking you, cause there is a diff, you know, there are different kinds of doctors. Oh, yeah. I would say if somebody said, are you a medical doctor or a PhD? I would I don't know. Is that offensive? Or is it just when they say to you, oh, like, justify your doctor? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, 
why do you yeah, have so this is how deep it gets. Are y'all ready? This is a part of the chapter meeting initiation. <laughs> Love it. This is how deep it gets. So I've always, and not just because I've been asked, but I've always enjoyed admissions. Even when I was a student, I loved to like show schools that I attended and all of those things. And so I love talking to prospective students. And so the way that question takes on an interesting meaning is, I can have parents who want to meet with me and they might say, so did you graduate at the top of your class? Like, what was your rank? Ah, and what were your standardized test scores? Interesting. And then just so that I'm clear on where they're going, I've had a woman say to me, you know, because I am so concerned about my son. My son is a white man and you and my daughter are going to surpass him because of what is going on today. Huh. Cute. What do I do with that? <laughs> so, what do you do with that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you asked me that, but then you get to things that have to do with, with okay, is this affirmative action? Is what's your IQ? You know, what was your level of quality? What was the quality of your qualification? And so how do I do that without getting into my feelings and being distracted by someone else's stuff, their anxieties? How do I remain present for their students should they be admitted? It's every day. It's not an isolated event. And so this is why I maintain formality on campus. You know, my faculty ID card is far more valuable than my license. If I'm pulled over and I show my faculty ID card, it has more weight than my license. And so for Keisha or the other Alicia on the other side of town who may not have the same way of communicating or who can't code switch in the same way, that's a privilege I have that I can deploy but when I go into the classroom, and if I'm late for class because of this inconvenience, I tell my students why. And I also switch up how I communicate with them so that if they encounter a Keisha or another Alicia, Keisha being the one who doesn't seem learned, the one who doesn't seem like she's professional, at least in their estimation of her, that they will still be able to hear her, even if her subject verb agreement isn't what they would prefer, that they would still be able to hear her and see her in the same respect that they have for me, someone who is assessing them. But I've had students who have also said, you know, it's, it, it is, um, you should be proud. When I was at UChicago as a student teacher, I've had students say, you should be proud to be teaching us. This is, this is, this is a great privilege to be teaching us. Wow. <laughs> I shake my head, but so then I guess it'll... <laughs> wow. When, well, because when Calvin said it, I had a reaction, of course, then too. I just, I always, mm -hmm. I have a reaction. <laughs> I, so I worked at a, a law school until really recently for like 10 years, and I'm just mm -hmm. trying to imagine what an old white man professor's reaction would be if one of the, loose, one of the law students said that to him. Mm -hmm, it would not mm -hmm. be good. <laughs> it would not go over well. 
Yeah, it's amazing. You know, and I'm thankful for the mentors that I had who actually helped me to know I wasn't crazy because it's maddening. It really, especially if you want to get to the work of being creative and engaging and you care about your students. Um, I had a friend who actually assisted me in that course. And after her time with me, she was a, she's a Jewish woman. She would tell everybody, she was like, listen, the things that she encounters in her classroom, I would not have, I would not have believed it. I mean, I would not have believed it. Um, but I'm glad that she said something and I'm glad she stated the difference she observed. Um, I am grateful though that with the students that I have who are often not black, um, that they have been so, such sponges. I mean, just so receptive to thinking critically about how they move about and are my colleagues in formation. And so the way they then show up in the classroom for their peers after observing these indignities means that uh, these experiences are actually, um, are actually bringing about change because they see the difference. They see when students curse me out. They see when students um, physically get in my, my face because I'm the first black person they've had assess them intellectually. Wow. Um, so it's, it's not just about verbal, ambiguous stuff, but it's like this cognitive dissonance, you know, this, this culture shock that unfortunately occurs at college. And so I tell my friends, make sure your, your young people are having intercultural experiences early so that their culture shock doesn't happen when they're getting assessed. Right. Um, and I tell my students, make sure that um, you assess not the personality, but the work, and then you deal with the personalities as you, you go, but we, we pay attention to the work. All right, guys, um, since this is such a long episode, we are breaking it into two. So make sure you tune in next week for the final half of Dr. Alicia Lella Jones's interview with us and uh, learn a little bit more about her book and some other really great and not so great stuff she's got to talk about. Um, you can find us on Instagram, that other F word pod. We, our website is thatotherfword.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. We'll be in videos on Facebook. So you can listen and actually see us. A lot of it's a silver lining of the pandemic. Is it though? I mean, a lot of people have said they enjoy watching our facial expressions when Mitch says stupid things, but I don't know. But here This episode <laughs> is going to be extremely fun because it's going to look like I ate an entire piece of pizza throughout the entire hour and a half episode. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, listen in next week and uh, always remember... Feminism isn't a bad word. Thank <laughs> you.